Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. Hey, hey, Brent. Hey, Alan. <laughs> it's time for another episode of AB Testing. Do you know what number we are? I do. I looked it up this time. Are we 130? We are. I mean, I have only one real job on the podcast, and last time you just went forward without me. I know, and I think I got it wrong. Was that last time or the time before I got it wrong? It was last time. What did I call it last time? 128? Uh, Yeah, you were... And it was 129, or are we just permanently off by one now? No, no, no. We're good? We're good? You 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 correctly corrected it in editing. I did. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So on, on my little recording device, it's just called 130. So I, I guessed well. That was my guess. I was going to double check with you. So uh, here we are recording on Friday. This will come out on Monday, November 2nd, which is one day before the U.S. election. And I have never in my life been so nervous over an election. Over an election that 538 says currently Joe Biden, well, anyone who's not Trump, has a 90% chance of winning the election. But I am still nervous because it comes down to what three or four or five states decide to do, which, which seems really fair. That's what people wanted when they made up Electoral College, for sure. There's crap going on to stop people from voting. There's crap going on to try and throw candidates under the bus. Four years ago, I wasn't the biggest Hillary fan either, but I think Trump's a piece of crap. So, But I was confident that he was just going to go away and do his talk show, and then crap happened, and I have not been happy. Uh, And not because I don't like him. It's not because I don't like him. It's because of the things he's done that make me not like him. Short story is, I'm not the... Welcome to the AB Testing Political Podcast. I'm Alan, and do my N- hey. NPR voice, and now over to Brent. Oh, so so it's you told so you were mentioning, you were soothing. hinting as we were talking, uh, like you have a prediction, and you being the data scientist... I hope it's not based on data, and I hope it doesn't just I, like I have like a knot in my chest just talking about this. But what are you what are you nervous well, about? What are you, so, what are you thinking so, about? So I will I will share with you um, uh, what my thought process is, and then I will assure the three this is entirely based on. Uh, non-data sources is it's it's, uh, it's more based on you remember back in the day when you and I were laughed at repeatedly because we saw that within the next three years the whole of Microsoft was going to get rid of test I do recall this yes well I wasn't the data scientist then uh, but but my prediction kind of comes from that same space. Well, it's sort you of, and I tend to pay attention to what's going on in the world around us and not in an echo chamber or even the bubble we live in. So, yeah. First off, I, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it on the, the, the podcast, right? I, um, uh, I don't think Alan's ever mentioned it, but he's he what party he's affiliated with, but he definitely has Democrat leanings. Well, I I had never thought about it much until the last four years. My viewpoint is I think people should be allowed to do what they want as long as it doesn't hurt other people. And I think people should be treated fairly. If that affiliates me with a party, then fuck it, go ahead. I, I believe in the golden rule. One party is closer to that at least than the other. Um, it's interesting you say it that way because uh, your first statement, I completely agree. Uh, uh, I haven't thought about your second statement enough to decide how I feel. The problem with deciding that whether or not people are treated fair is fair is a subjective term. But I do believe that people should be allowed to live their lives as they see fit. Uh, I'll just say I am a libertarian. 
which means no matter who I talk to, no matter who I talk to, I can agree with them that the other guy is an idiot. Um, and in this case, like we keep hearing that, that, that uh, this is about to go into a two party system blows rant. Oh, a, a two party system does blow. Everyone knows that it's idiotic. We, we I want hearing- ranked choice voting and no electoral college and term limits. Oh, term limits for everyone. <laughs> I'm so with you. Those are my, I'm going to run for something, yeah. class president of the AB testing podcast. And those are the three things I want. I want ranked choice voting so we can get other parties involved, even if even if it takes a while to get them to grow. I want to get rid of the Electoral College because it doesn't make sense anymore. I'm sorry. Uh, your arguments are invalid. And I want term limits because just turn on the news and you'll see why. Let me, let me, I'll, I'll just quickly glance through sort of my philosophy and then give you my prediction. The, the Meanwhile, first philosoph- the listeners are like, fast forward 30 seconds, still politics. Fast forward yeah. 30 seconds, still politics. <laughs> All right, go on. Uh, up next on the AB Testing pol- er, Podcast, <laughs> religions and which one's right. Uh, I I don't know if I can do anymore, man. (laughs) So, so right now with the two party system, I actually view uh, the Democrats and the Republicans as the opposite sides of one very stupid coin. And they, the way I view that they differ is the Democrats uh, offer freedom and independence uh, on social issues, but want control of fiscal issues. The Republicans are, are the exact opposite. Like the, the best thing the Republicans, as an example, could do for their party is boot the religious right out. And I think that would attract a large number of centrists. But I am not in a role uh, for political advisement. A libertarian kind of goes, no, uh, we want free. We want the freedom and independence on both sides of that coin. And for those who aren't aware, the opposite side of a libertarian uh, is uh, a socialist. Uh, where essentially, no, no, we we want the government to sort of be a big part and regulate both sides. Now that said, so at least on one of those pivots, you and I agree. My prediction uh, for this election, I will state that I, I there's, it's a three-parter. Uh, sadly, I believe Trump will win. I hope to God you're wrong. I, I very strongly believe he will win. And I can even articulate why I think I that. I don't want you to because I don't believe you. Okay, good. The second thing I believe is he will be impotent. I think the the Democrats will control enough of Congress that essentially the next four yeah, years the will be a and, no up. The checks and balances haven't worked the last four years. It, it's 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 been a wreck. It's been an absolute wreck. Yes, completely agree. The third thing, and this is the thing that I am worried about. You asked what I'm worried about. It's this third thing. Uh if I am right on the first one, it doesn't matter if I'm right on the second one. If I am right on the first one, I do think uh, the third thing will happen, and that is uh, literally America will burn. Yep. I believe um, you are correct. And there is there are signs of what I will call um, political blackmail already occurring. Uh, a buddy of mine, uh, and now I haven't confirmed this, but a buddy of mine was mentioning that in his neighborhood, he had heard, right? So this is now a three-level interaction. He had heard of pamphlets being distributed to houses uh, in suburbs saying, if Trump wins, this house will be damaged or destroyed or something like that, right? And so it's, it's con- p- conspiracy land, yeah, I, I don't want to. Look, the thing I'm saying on this front, the fact that rumors like that are even coming uh, is what worries me. I don't care what the, the thing is. All right. I, I'm going to I'm going to close this out because uh, the listeners are super, super bored. 
you know, I can only hope that, you know, I don't believe you on point two. If Trump wins, I don't think, I, I think he's going to continue to incite hate. I do not affiliate myself with a political party, so I think the two-party system is broken. It doesn't help that you're being a libertarian, just those are your political views, doesn't give you a candidate to vote for, uh, because you can only vote for one of the two. I got a candidate to vote yeah, for. Yeah, it's, it's a wasted vote. Uh, yeah, and it's already been... Uh, yeah, that's My stupid. wasted vote has already been sent. <laughs> if if a fraction of the voters that voted for the third-party candidate in the swing states where Trump won, barely won, voted for Hillary instead, we'd have a different crappy president right now. Um, yes, that's absolutely true. The data will tell you that. So anyway, again, I don't like either party. That's a concern this time too, though, right? Right, because uh, there are actually a lot of left-leaning folks who, Ho- who are essentially aren't so stupid to know that their vote is wasted. And again, because of our lovely electoral college, your vote only counts if you live in one of ten states. Otherwise, nobody gives a crap who your presidential vote is for, other than bragging rights for the popular vote, which I guarantee. Uh, unfortunately, again, I guarantee you, Biden will win the popular vote. I think it's a 0% chance. Anyway, let's go on with the podcast. There's your political commentary. This is going to come out Monday. You can pontificate on this. Uh, I took today off to build some furniture and to putter around the house because, I, as I mentioned last time, I wasn't earning any more vacation days. I am taking Wednesday off as an election recovery day. I plan to stay up late watching and either crying or or being relieved. I don't know if I'll, I'll celebrate, uh, but... But I will be up late, going to take Wednesday off, try and recover, get my mind set for what, based on whatever happens, and plow into the rest of the year. So let's get into the podcast proper. How many minutes have we gone by here? Okay, about after editing, maybe 12 minutes into the podcast. Uh, I had a, we had a great conversation, uh, a meeting this week. So my manager, our VP of engineering, has a weekly meeting with all of the people managers in his org once a week for 30 minutes, which it's actually really good. It's a way to have the right conversations, align on some things. Sometimes it's business. Sometimes it's just a, what do you think? And I had forgotten. This is a question that maybe early on in our relationship, I remember sitting at that Vietnamese place having a conversation about this topic, and you had changed your mind since then, and I hadn't really talked about it much. I have strong opinions about this, well, strong opinions about the ambiguity of this question, but it generated a lot, a lot of discussion, so I want to throw it at you and maybe for our listeners for comment. And here's the question. As a manager... How many people should you manage? What's the limit? What's the minimum? Minimum? Minimum. If you're going to be a manager, how many people can you effectively manage? I don't think there... Well, okay. So minimum's actually easier than maximum. So minimum's one, right? Minimum's one. <laughs> but if I were in an executive role... Right? Would would I ever do that? And of course, the answer is no. I, I can put constraints around it. So I remember these days, like back in the day, it was uh, four, or five, and and at Microsoft there was a phase where needed to be a minimum of twenty. This was when Microsoft was was heavily laden on managers, and now it is. I would say the policy is a bit more laissez-faire. Um, it's we don't see you don't see too many small teams, uh, and small teams, if they get constructed, generally you'll see in the next budgetary cycle, you know, a couple more Notice heads. Notice how we'll, Brent still hasn't answered the question. Minimum five. Maximum. There, it's going to depend on the person. Brent, but what is the answer to any sufficiently complex question? 42. The answer is it depends. The answer to any sufficiently complex question is it depends. Yeah, on that one, but still, I want to come up with a number, and I'm going to say somewhere around 20-ish is the, the maximum. 
Yeah, and it, it depends on seniority, what you're working on, etc. I'm flat, 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 flat. And I fully believe, yeah, you can manage. I don't know if I go as high as 20. I currently have 11 direct reports. So I feel pretty good about that. People say, oh, it's so many. And I think, no, I think I, I'm, in, I'm under control. But there was a lot of pushback on the team from having a high number of direct reports, like more than eight. So Brent, how do you manage a team of 20? A stand-up with 20 people is untenable. Uh, a stand-up with 20 people is untenable. It's not the same topic. Yeah, I, I, yes, that was that was an area of pushback that for me that maybe made, made me go from leaning back in my chair, going along with to whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, hold wait, on. wait, wait. Let's talk about. Like I was just thinking through. I had my data science head on, and and one of the things I was thinking through is essentially like a like an old econ supply and demand curve. Like what would we look at to identify the ideal number, and then it very quickly comes down to sort of principles. Now, in this entire discussion, you've been asking me, you know, uh, min and max for managing a team. Okay. Um, I don't give a crap about managers, right? What I want is leaders. And the problem when you have a manager is with a small team, they have a tendency to micromanage, uh, overly focus on the product, uh, fail to encourage autonomy and fail to come up with vision or principles or rallying cry. On the, on the other side, though, uh, I was just thinking, what's the biggest issue you have with too large of a team? And that's you have to choose what you spend, like for me, I, I currently have a half hour one-on-one with each of my directs at some point in time, right? Uh, with, uh, with 40 hours in a week, that means I could have a max of uh, 80 reports and all I would be doing is one-on-ones, right? Which well, doesn't scale at there, all. There's other meetings you need to go to. And by the way, I also do weekly one-on-ones for a half hour with all of my directs. Any other leads in the org? So if my skip, if I have leads reporting to my managers, I'll meet with them every other week, and then I have another half dozen or so people uh, I meet with monthly. Maybe ten people I meet with monthly. So I, I spend a lot of time one on ones. I find it very valuable. There's something else I was going to mention, but go on. Yeah, for me, one of the things that I did, particularly as at a, at a defense for COVID. Is I kept my one-on-ones, but when it came down to specific like project questions, I found that my team kept on trying to set up additional half-hour meetings in a one-on-one context. Right, you you had mentioned that before. Yeah, and so I actually just created a, a daily one-hour Brent's office hours, and say that's where you come in with your your one-off three-minute question or whatever. Um, and that's been effective. It's been effective. Uh, I've, I've gotten everyone to a degree of I'm, I'm able to spend time coaching them through the career, coaching them through uh, their development. The team feels like they have uh, a dedicated time to come in. and. Have, I'm, I'm going to put yeah. us back on topic here. Oh, I thought I was on topic. Uh, ish. I mean, I, it's great. You have one-on-ones. They're effective. Awesome. The other bit of feet. So one was stand-ups. And of course, the team size doesn't mean stand-up. We've got multiple projects. One bit of feedback I gave there. I mean, you go the opposite, which is we've, we, you and I have seen at Microsoft in these where every single different feature area had a own, their, its own lead, even if they had one person or 10 people. And you end up shipping your org structure. The other thing I want your feedback on is a lot of people push back on saying, well, if I'm a, a line level lead, and I just have ICs reporting to me, I can't manage more than six people and still provide any tech leadership to my team. I'm too far away from the tech once I manage more than six people. What do you say to that? I would say that's a person you should double the size of their team. 
Because they're, and I'm serious, because they're actually focused on managing and not leading. I, I, I agree a million percent. And it's a wacky solution, but I tell you, it works. It's, it's like, no, what do you got to do to put this manager in a position where he gives up micromanagement as a solution? No, stop, <laughs> guide, direct, measure. <laughs> yeah, it's only been in this position. This is really the first time where I have not been able to, uh, you know, managing managers, of a team of about 60 people now where I can no longer contribute anything technically, whether it's code, whether it's technical documentation. Uh, I just, it's, I no longer have time for that. However, even when I managed fairly large teams, moderate teams of, of 20, 25, I could still do non-critical important tech work. Just if I wanted to stay sharp, but I found that very easy to do. I could, I could, I knew what people worked on, understood how it worked. I just don't get the argument that uh, because I'm, and again, I, I like the fact that they're putting an emphasis on on growing people, and that does take time. Recruiting for open positions takes time. It's hard to fill a team, but I just do not buy the statement that once you manage more than six people, even if they're all super junior, because they'll take time, they will take more time when they're junior. But I just don't believe that stops you from being able to contribute technically. Again, lots of lots of variants. The answer is, you know, my answer is eight plus or minus five. (laughs) Eight plus or minus five is the. I don't know. I, I just made up a number. Yeah, that would be eight minus five. So that mean no, that's that's a bullshit number. Yeah, of course um, it is. Eight plus or minus two, maybe. Like the Scrum one, that's an easy answer, right? It, there's a lot of actual science. There's actual science on this one, on uh, where the ideal Scrum team is five to seven. So if you yes. have twenty directs, all right, right and they're probably create- not all working on the exact same thing. I no. actually prefer that. I don't even like seven. Uh, so I'm going through a challenge related, not a challenge, a, a shift in uh, my org where a lot of folks have been org I inherited, I should say. People worked a lot on their own. Here's a project. One person worked on it. Here's another project. One person worked on it. A lot of stuff being worked on at once. Not a lot of things, as you can imagine, being finished. Uh, what we're working on now is doing more of these projects that are shared and worked on not only by multiple people, but wait for it, self-organizing teams that span managers. Now, how do you do a standup? You do, you, you, you do it with the damn people who are working on the project. Therein lies the solution. Self-organizing teams. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm lucky I can do that given the nature of infrastructure and DevOps, whatever you want to call it, work. Uh, we're going to focus on finishing. Uh, and even better, even better, one little plug for me, and I have another topic to do. We can go more in here. But mm. uh, in my self-organizing teams, I love this, that the people working on the team span different managers. It's going to work great. I'm pretty excited about it. But I'm also, I'm giving all of the, the project's code names named after Hanna-Barbera cartoons. That's pretty cool. So last week I kicked off Project Grape Ape. I was just gonna ask. <laughs> I was just gonna ask. I, I, I can't. I can't tell is, you but... what it is, but something came up that I had to set up. I knew I wanted to do something about it. I knew I wanted to get a bunch of people involved, and I knew it was something that if it had the, there are keywords I did not want to mention in the channel title. So on the spur of the moment, I made up Project Grape Ape. Somebody asked me, are you talking about the children's cartoon or the or the strain of marijuana? And I said the children's cartoon. But what? But very cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm kicking one off again. I took the day off. I didn't want to spend mail to send mail today, but on Monday, I will be kicking off Project Yogi Bear. Nice. Is Boo Boo gonna be your last one? Do you know how many had I mean I have the whole Scooby gang to go through. I'm loading it up. All right. It, it is now the single most important thing. Of course, because oh, you you're, you got, you got, you're <laughs> so ADD. 
yeah. Ooh. Uh, Snagglepuss. Yeah. Project Snagglepuss. Huckleberry Hound. Yeah. Oh, I always loved Captain Caveman. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's how I handle team size. You just let teams, well, don't let them, help them organize. And I know I've mentioned it before, and I mentioned it to my team now, the World of Warcraft Guide to Project Management. Get a team together. It's like the end game in World of Warcraft. Get a team together with varying skills. Work together to solve a common problem. When you've reached your exit criteria, because even in a raid in World of Warcraft, maybe you don't want to do the whole thing. You just want to get to the one chest because you want to help this one guy get this one piece of armor or whatever. You Whatever the goal is, you accomplish it together, and then you either take on other tasks together or you disband. It's one of the things there's a planning event from safe that is very much aligned with what you're talking about. Uh, as we talked about here no, before, again, I don't like safe. So pass. All right. Shockingly does not hurt my feelings. Um, the, but the planning event kind of solves that problem where basically a business leader comes in and says, these are the scenarios we need accomplished. The other aspect that, that really helps here is when you do self-organizing teams is that you have missions and not owners, mm-hmm. right? I, I kind of think of it like a military mission. Hey, we need to go take out that, that artillery bunker, right? Once it's done, it's done. But when you have product teams with feature owners there's this general inclination to to locally optimize right oh yeah alan look we just nailed feature foo for the united states and then alan comes back great what's it going to take to go globally oh well it's going to cost the same amount for each country yeah, but the, the rest of the countries are only 10% of our usage. Yeah, well, do you want globally or not? It's one of those things where if, if, if you were in a, a more dynamic scrum type organization, you might be offered the opportunity to say, no, actually, it's not worth the price tag. Um, but when you have feature teams... They just, they just, uh, okay, well, we'll do the next country in the next country. And I mean, it's a bad metaphor, but I, I see that feature teams or product teams, when they go down that model, they have a tendency to sort of local optimize instead of global optimize. Uh, short story is self-organizing teams, let them figure it out, give them the help and coaching they need and Hanna-Barbera project names. I wasn't planning on getting there from the conversation about how many people <laughs> should you manage, but it reminded me of something. And, you know, I think it depends. I think I don't like managers with only one or two or three direct reports. I think it's, it's, I prefer flatter orgs. Uh, it depends on the seniority of the manager and lots of other things, but I think it's perfectly capable of managing well into the teens. And as you said, 20, I think it's definitely possible. It just depends on the, on a lot of different things. There's only scenario, one scenario where I like uh, a manager uh, above a small team. And that is they are a new manager. That's it. That's sure. the and only. I, I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't give a new manager, you know, more than five. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. So I have another topic. Nice. And I don't know if you saw. I, a while back in Twitter, where should I start on this? Of course, we have, plug, the Introduction to Modern Testing course on Ministry of Test. Still getting people going through it. I think it's really done well. I've also been thinking about what's next. If that's the 101 for modern testing, what's the 201? Put some questions out on Twitter. Didn't get a lot of good answers until I think it was Lisa Crispin's answer. And I forget what she said, and I should have brought that up. Let me see if I can find it in my replies. No, I can't find it. But it was something to the effect of what does it take to, the principles are great, what does it take to be a modern tester? Or, or how, do you, how do you do these things? That got me thinking, and sorry, Lisa, for messing that up, but it got me thinking, other things were around, 
the basics of how do you get developers to test. And I actually just did a talk on that eight minute talk for test flicks. I recorded, uh, I don't know. I can't remember when the event is. I'm sorry. I'll maybe I'll put a link to it if I remember, but, uh, there was that bit. Then it kind of hit me because uh, what, I, what I'd like to do is a workshop for Ministry of Test uh, just to promote the course and to get some more ideas about that. But the working title is, so you want to be a modern tester. We can start off with, well, of course, it's like DevOps is a culture. Modern testing is a culture. We have DevOps people to help facilitate that culture. Hence, we could have modern testers to help facilitate that culture. So in that is like, what are the things, if you want to move the org in that direction, what are the things that are difficult in those first steps? One is getting developers to test. I feel like I have a good model for that in pairing with them, asking them questions, uh, working on coaching, which is getting people out of telling them what to do versus asking them to think about what needs to get done get them to actually shift into that tester's mindset. I think that's one area. Do you struggle with with getting them to take over accountability for testing? No. Or well, because of the way you've described it in the past, you kind of trick them into it. It's not we do trick them into it by by pairing with them or working with them. And then it's as I've described, a developer may ask a tester can you test this for me? And instead of saying, sure, yes, let me please test that for you. You can ask, well, sure. What have you, what have you tested so far? Well, nothing. Okay. Well, let's do it together. See what we find. Maybe the next time it's, well, I've tested A and B and, and they pair together to test on C and D and eventually gets to the point where the developers actually done all the testing and they say, it looks pretty good. Very shortened version of my, how that works. So what happens there is that's a way to work with developers to get them to be accountable and feel like feel like they get them over the bridge where they feel like they can own testing. But then the next thing that happens is they don't realize what testing they're missing. I think continued pairing to get them to think about after you ask them what testing is remaining and they can say, I can't think of any, and you can say, great. What still worries you? What do you think is still risky? And then you can probe for questions on perf or reliability or latency and form hypotheses that you can go form tests to prove or disprove. I think there's a topic there. I don't believe it's a whole 90-minute topic for like for a workshop, but maybe it is. Maybe it is. What do you think? Is, is there – because the other option is we could go deep diving in teaching developers to test, it's not that different from teaching testers to test. So I, I feel like if we talk about the coaching, that would cover that. I think about the two ways that I've been able to help teams transform. <laughs> Honestly, well, it's been, it's been the same way. And I wrote it up in a very, very, very old blog post. And that is... Uh, essentially shaking the tree. It's essentially by leveraging unified engineering and at the same time sort of removing the 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 QA role uh, from this. It's setting the expectation that from here on out, every member of this team is a developer and a, and a tester. Now, I know for a lot of our community, right, that's basically saying, oh, but you're saying that if I want be a modern tester and I have to learn the code. I think we can nip that one in the bud, but I, I, I like mm. where you're going because we could address, this is all principle seven, right? This is, maybe there's a, as, as an exercise on, and this may be in the course, this is actually in the course already on, what would it take for your team not to have dedicated QA? What would have to happen? This is my thinking of it. In a world where, let's say, we had two disciplines on the same product. Let's say we had Dev and P, or not Dev and PM, um, Dev and Test. Okay. Well, towards that product, in the, the prior vernacular, we would refer the, to them as specialists. And as we've mentioned a bajillion times before, specialists are bottlenecks and. Yes. Uh, 
modern testing is anti-bottleneck. Well, the easiest way, to how do you take two sets of specialists and turn them into uh, generalizing specialists? Well, you, you force them into an environment where they have to essentially crossbreed. Now, what makes them a specialist here is their knowledge. So we're not actually asking them to crossbreed, but their knowledge to crossbreed. And you have to put them in a situation where those, the only way for them to claim success after, say, a period of six months is if that knowledge was successfully transferred both ways. I'll give you a, a very tight example. Okay. Number one, one of the ways I see these type of unified engineering orgs poorly implemented is by putting the the prior dev manager in charge, right? Because one of the issues is management. You have two managers often where you only need one now. Well, um, no. What I would do is instead is keep the same number of managers, but swap um basically do team membership traits. Uh, as an example, let's say you were a dev manager and I was a test manager. Okay. What you and I are going to do, and uh, we both manage 10 people. Okay. What you and I are going to do is uh, you're going to give me your three best developers and I'm going to give you my three best testers. Those three best developers, they're going to be accountable for driving uh, whatever relevant knowledge to me, the manager, as well as to the rest of my team. But the, the tester side, right, when it comes down to votes, because I have seven testers and three developers, that test side is going to balance out those three folks. So to be clear, this is your plan for we have a QA team. We have a test, yeah. we have a dev team, and we're going to just have a dev team. One way to make that work. I agree. Yeah. So you, really, that, you, you, you want to mix and match the talent in a way that enables people to learn. But we should also talk about, I mean, again, this was, your example comes from Microsoft. Experience, where we, experience at Microsoft, where at the time you did that, we largely had test teams were roughly even equal in size to the dev teams they worked with. I think what we'll find in a lot of companies today is that's not the case. The number of QA folks is a much smaller percentage of the overall staff. I would say typically embedded in teams as an agile team, but they still do all the testing, gross. The flavor of that, though, still works. I think to answer the question of, oh, you're telling me I have to code? No. Uh, the folks that have formerly been in QA for me. Some of them are coding. Some of them are quality coaching. Some of them are in DevOps where they do code, but they're doing different. It's a lot of infrastructure setup as well. Some are doing program management or project management. Anyway, there's a lot of different directions you can go. Aside from the dev stuff, let's talk about the other thing that I think is hard for people who look at the principles. And that's right up your alley. It's data. Yes. So there is something there. So imagine you're somebody, QA person or quality-minded dev person on a team, and you look at the principles and you go, yep, we care about the business. Yep, dev zone quality. You go on down list, you go, data. No, we don't do data. Or we can't do data because it's we're worried about collecting the wrong information. I can tell you from experience, a lot of people are afraid of collecting any usage data because they think it's PII. It's not. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, one, that one drive you crazy, too? No. Knowing, knowing which button they clicked, that's okay. That's not PII. Okay? There's nothing personal about it. It's I, fine. I actually, for the longest time, that one would drive me nuts. I still and, hear that too often. And, and, uh, and this is what I tell them. Let's play a little game, Alan. Alan, do you actually know what PII means? It means personally identifiable information. Right. And almost every person I talk to knows the answers to that, but they have forgotten it. They don't understand the meaning. They just use PII. Okay. And I say, okay, so 
here is a click stream of a customer going through and clicking our U our UI. Okay. Tell me how you are able to personally identify this person. Who are they? And anything you can tell me about that person is fine. Like where they live, what their phone number is, their 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 name, their middle name, any any information that helps to triangulate who they are. And they're like, well, I can't. Guess what? Not personally identifiable information. Right. So <laughs> let's back out a level because that one pisses me off and annoys me. It's solvable. No, it's so how do we get someone started? Like, like if you your team does not collect any data, uh, any customer data, there are a couple challenges here. There's a technical challenge of picking whatever off-the-shelf solution there is to get some of that data, whether it's Google Analytics for a web page or I don't even know what exists in the open source world for a desktop app. But even the technical part, what do you collect? I know the answers to these, but but how do you get the team started? You have a team who don't care about it because they haven't collected it. How do we get? How do we take a team? How do we lead a team towards no data to collecting customer data that affects decisions in the org? So it's interesting. Yesterday, I had a developer uh, from a, a team um, that I know very little about. Uh, they had raised, uh, I'll just cut this short. Uh, one of the things that's very common, maybe once a month and once every two months, I will do a one-off mentorship session with somebody I've never met before and I have no idea how they found me. They, that happened yesterday. And he is a developer, just graduated college uh, with a, uh, in May with a bachelor's in computer science. And he took one stats and ML course. And he, uh, he, wants, he came to me and wanted to know, how do I become a data scientist when I grow up? And uh, one of the things I told him, I'm not going to go through the whole thing because the premise is slightly different than what you're talking about, but I actually think the implementation might be useful is I said, okay, so you're a new guy. And as you know, uh, well, I don't know if this is universal, uh, but at Microsoft, you know, new guys in dev, um, new people in dev. Thank you. Uh, yep. Um, will spend Probably the first six months, spending 80% of their time uh, just fixing bugs. That's how they get their feet wet. And I said, all right, here is a thought process for you. This is what I want to think you, I want you to think through. For every one of your bug fixes, once it goes to production, how do you know whether or not this added value to your customer and or your business or just wasted your time. That's it. That's, that, that's the question I laid on this plate. And I said, how do you know that? And then I followed up and I said, you're probably going to dive into it and realize you don't have the right data, which is going to force you to have a conversation around or, or a, at least a thought process around what what data do I need in order to make those two choices? If, if you try to simplify, did I waste my time on this bug fix or did I add value? But you the, the key thing there is you have to be able to prove it, right? Because a lot of the times dev goes, oh, I'm sure we added value. Look, it was a, you know, whatever, right? And, and I said, once you do that, and you do it repeatedly, you'll learn from your mistakes. You're like, crap. Um, I can't statistically prove that I did it now. Like that would be probably less than three. Great. The trend's looking better, but is it relevant? Um, what I did is I said, I, I, I framed the mission in a way that resonated with him, that the more he could 
proactively determine uh, without intuition or opinion in play whether or not he wasted his time, um, that would that would play out well for him in the long term. I mean, uh, anyway, so is that at all helpful or is it me yet again bloviating? I think there's some nuggets in there. The question I, I asked the, the opposite version of the question, which is, how will you know customers are being successful with this feature? Well, it's it's not the opposite. It's it's the same question, except now on features, right? Sure. Right. You sure. just spent six months doing this feature. Are customers successful, or did you waste yeah. your time? <laughs> I, I hope it's not six months. I hope it's not six months. That that helps you figure out. There's some brainstorming around that that helps you figure out what you can measure. There may be a topic in there. I have a meta question. So there's one is teaching developers to test. One is really getting started with data and maybe a little deeper because I kind of covered that. In fact, I used that question in the intro course as well. But what else do you think is stopping teams from moving to modern testing? Tradition, I think, is the number one. The fact that in general, I don't think that the test org has ever done a great job answering um, the implied questions around principle number one is is way up there, right? Yes, and I've pointed to it a few times in our in one of the three .com. Go to moderntesting.org to find an invitation link. But I wrote an article last year, year before, I can't remember, uh, just fighting this, we always hear about the cost of software testing, which is the opposite of principle one. So I forget the title of the article. Uh, I will not probably forget to post a link to it in the notes, but uh, I wrote an article for CIO Tech on the value add of good testing. I didn't say testers, I say good testing. It's not a cost, it's a value add. Um. Well, not by itself, it's not. It just just doing a bunch of well, I guess never mind. You know, because you you qualified it by the word good testing, and and more more likely than not, you and I, if we were to drill down, that you and I would agree on it. Um, All right, I I think there's something there. <laughs> I have to remember. I want for, and this is not in the short term. It's it's batting around in the back of my head. I do want to do something, uh, a workshop that dives deeper into how to make these things happen. But as I talk through it, I'm kind of, it's the gusto's going away a little bit because really what you need is leadership skills. You need to be able to influence change and get people to care about what you're doing and, and think what you're saying and trying to do is valid. That's probably the most important thing. We didn't cover it in either of our two stories. There are two things that really solidified what we now call modern testing for me. Number one is my own personal experience of managing a dev team without any sort of testing. Okay. But number two, it's the agile principle around removing waste from the system. And I and how valuable that is. And in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to confidently identify waste. And the thing that really resonated with me on that one was the Eric Reese story. Where yes. he, he had his whole company. They um, spent six months working 40-hour days to pr produce this one value-add system uh, that at that point in time, they all were true believers. They all in that organization believed. None of them had any data, but they all believed that, of course, it must be true that this would be a hit. And they got 20 downloads the day they shipped, right? It, it was an abject failure. They, they had misunderstood the problem that their customer needed, uh, needed solved. And I happened to see a presentation. Eric Reese came here to Microsoft, and I happened to see him to pre present. 
And he's like, you know, I replayed that that whole six months over and over and over again. And I realized something that if on the day one that we started this, if we had created a mock-up webpage that said, hey, welcome to Eric Reese's Magic Project. Click here to download. They could have discovered that same day just by putting that fake facade up to see if there was any demand here. And I remember like yesterday, the question he asked, and by the way, folks, would I have had to implement that download page or would a 404 just been fine? We've told that story before. I think it's it's good. Maybe one of the things is to, you have to wear a little bit of that project management hat in order to get past, of course, there's the fallacy of now. What I'm working on now has to be, customers have to have it. And failure to launch, which is this case of spending too much time waiting for customer feedback. Well, uh, so well, we do yeah, not yeah, yeah, yeah. have time to for a rebuttal. We're gonna have no, no, to no. Call, okay, go on. No, I was just going to agree. That's exactly right. Don't. It, it's not even waiting for too much time. It's no matter how much time you wait for feedback. How do you make it faster? Because that's how you eliminate waste from the system. Yeah, it's that's speeding how you up the feedback cycle. So maybe there's something there. I, I would love to hear back from the three. Uh, you can either uh, reply to the Twitter post announcing this, the LinkedIn post announcing this. You can add comments. You can send us mails. You can poke us on Slack and let us know what you think we should be doing for the community to help them get even further with modern testing. And I'll try and coagulate that into some sort of workshop. That's my plan. Thanks for workshopping that with me a little bit, Brett. Uh, sure. We will chat again in a couple of weeks. Is that right? Post-election? Yes, we yeah, well, well, that's we'll, we'll the plan, see, we'll right? See, well, we'll, see if we're, right. we'll see if we're both still here. We, we both live in the hated suburbia, so... Right. Uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening this far. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. See you next time. Walking.